millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a new criminal case. Annalise Michael, a young 23-year-old German woman, died on July 1st, 1976, under mysterious conditions. Whether she died from malnutrition, medical negligence, or from the numerous exorcisms that she had repeatedly experienced remains unclear. It is difficult to point out the guilty in the case in which Catholic factions, mystics, and various pathologies are involved. Despite her long stay in different hospitals towards the latter end of the 60s, Annalise never knew what she was really suffering from, and the treatments prescribed by her different doctors never improved her condition. Convinced that their daughter was possessed, her parents called into exorcism priest to get rid of the possible entity that seemed to haunt her. But things didn't go as planned. Her condition deteriorated rapidly. Her physical and vocal metamorphosis was frightening and her attacks became uncontrollable. For those around her, it was the devil himself who had taken over her. The young woman died in a terrible physical condition, stunted, toothless, and ten months of unceasing suffering. She was down to only a shadow of herself. Her parents and the priests who had exorcised her were prosecuted by the highest legal authorities for negligence and non-assistance to a person in danger. But were they the only ones responsible for her death? I invite you to discover this dark story which is still shrouded in mystery, the news of which had reached the Vatican and has even inspired Hollywood. We all have at least once in our lives seen the movie The Exorcist. We have all been horrified and traumatized by those scenes that have become a fad and that are unanimous in horror cinema. The proof is that the film is still talked about even today and even the generations born in the early 2000s know about it. But beyond the Hollywood production, real cases of exorcism from all around the world have reached us thanks to television reports and sound recordings that have been archived and preserved in their original state. We can mention in particular the infamous case of Maurice Theriot from Quebec, a case covered by a couple of parapsychologists that need no introduction, Ed and Lorraine Warren. The case we are interested in today comes from Germany, where it has eventually been forgotten as the hold of the Catholic Church has diminished in the Northern European country, where the sense of practical legislation rarely leaves room for the morbid and exasperated imagination. And yet, Annalise Michael's life had nothing worthy of mention. Her life was very ordinary until the following events dramatically changed it. It all began in Liebliffing, Bavaria, where Annalise Maria Theresa Michael was born on September 21, 1952. 
Her parents, Joseph and Anna, were Catholic, a good couple, and above all, extremely religious. Annalise was the oldest of the three daughters, Claudia, Greta, and Anfred. The Michael family was a relatively more traditional and classic family of the early 60s. Osif, the father who wanted to be a priest in his youth and whose two sisters are capuchin nuns, worked as a laborer in a sawmill and brought all the money he earned home. He kept only a small pot in his savings account. Anna, the mother, a housewife, took care of the four daughters, the housework and the cooking. All six of them lived a quiet life in a small, predominantly Roman Catholic village in Würzburg. They were surrounded by the beautiful green Bavarian countryside considered as a healthy place to raise children. It was far from the hustle and bustle of the big, saturated metropolises like Berlin and Munich, which offered various temptations and original sin at every corner. At least, that's what Anna and Josef taught. Annalise and her sister grew up in a Catholic home where a red line between good and evil was strictly enforced by their parents. They attended Mass twice a week, where they regularly atoned for their sins in the confessional. Father, I pulled my sister's doll's hair out. Father, I ate more cake than my mom allowed. Father, I forgot to say my prayers before bed last night, and so on. Anna, the mother, was the most devout. She would not miss for anything in the world the dawn church service where she went to at the first sound of the angelus while it was still dark and everyone was sleeping. She felt the need to inflict self-punishment because of a well-kept secret in the family. She had become pregnant much before marrying her husband and they had their first daughter in 1948, who died of an illness in infancy, five years before Annalise was born. The mother remained persuaded that the death of this illegitimate child, born out of the sacred bond of marriage, was a result of the dreaded divine wrath that fell upon her. She became over time a protective and possessive mother of her four daughters born thereafter. For this reason, she always feared that something bad would happen to them, as with the first. Annalise's childhood was a classic one. She was a nice, reserved girl and a fairly gifted student. However, illness overshadowed a good part of her childhood, and she suffered from several pathologies, measles, scarlet fever, typhoid, and tonsillitis, for which she had her tonsils removed. Shortly before her puberty, she contracted pneumonia again, and then something resembling tuberculosis, which led her to enter the Middleburg Sanatorium. This long series of illness forced little Annalise to be absent from school for long periods and instead remained bedridden. She was not able to make long-lasting friendships and surrounded herself with friends because of her condition. She was a lonely child and even her sisters rarely gave her company for the fear of catching an infection. She met a young boy named Peter from her class during teenage. She sympathized first with him before falling in love. She could only see her boyfriend with her family, whether they went out together to a cafe or the cinema, and as emotional relationships were strictly regulated by her parents. Annalise's mother always made sure to follow them as a chaperone. Willing to become a teacher of German literature, Annalise planned to go to the university right after she graduated from high school. A dream was to go to the big city of Munich to study, an idea that her mother was not thrilled about but her father encouraged her to go anyway, even promised to rent a small student room in a city center for herself, provided she was accepted with honors at the selection process. With this goal in mind, the young girl doubled her efforts in class, scoured the libraries, and worked hard to always be ranked among the first. 
However, an unprecedented event cut short this effervescence in September 1968. It was during her comparative literature class that Annalise was attacked by a strange illness. The pain was so severe that she fainted and fell unconscious in the middle of the classroom. Her mother was informed and she rushed immediately to get her. Annalise woke up few hours later in her pajamas, lying in the bed without a memory of what happened to her. Things did not get any better during the night. As she was dozing in her sheets, she was suddenly struck with paralysis. For about 20 minutes, she remained still, prone, unable to move or scream. Her throat hurt terribly and her head too. She only regained normalcy at first light, but this episode, the first of its kind, left a deep impression on her and she was afraid of having another attack. The next few days and months passed normally. Annalise returned to school, enjoyed seeing Peter again, continued to go to church twice a week, rode her bike, and helped her sisters with their homework. But in August 1969, her dreaded crisis returned without warning. Annalise experienced the same episode as a year earlier, with the same symptoms and the same fear. The next morning, she told her parents everything, and they were devastated. Anna said it was useless to wait for a third episode to occur and urgent medical attention was needed. Accompanied by her mother, the teenager was taken the next day to the general practitioner. The latter, after having examined her, did not detect anything abnormal, but to be sure, he advised her to consult a neurologist, and she did. Annalise underwent an encephalogram at the health center of her family doctor, a neurologist from a private clinic in Nuremberg, Dr. Van Halle. After studying the waves emitted by her brain for a long time, Dr. Van Halle told her that her results were good. There was no need to worry. Everything seemed to be normal. She was not suffering from anything and she could go home. Mother and daughter breathed a sigh of relief. However, the doctor was not finished. He warned Annalise that if the symptoms she had mentioned persisted or recurred, she might develop epilepsy in the long run. He prescribed antidepressants and sleeping pills to help her sleep and left it at that. At first, the treatment gave her some relief. She slept relatively well, ate well, rode her bike, and even helped her father repair a fence. The doctor was right. Everything did work out in the end. With this improvement, Annalise took a risky decision to stop taking her medicines without bothering to notify her neurologist. Why should she worry too much, since her condition was anyway improving? What was the point of continuing a treatment that served no purpose? This was purely the thinking of the 60s, when people became healthier, probably. It was in this state of mind that Annalise was happy to return to school, take control of her studies, and pass her baccalaureate with distinction. The only downside was that she had to give up her plans to attend the University of Munich because she was not selected. To keep her hopes alive, her father enrolled her at the University of Lee Bluffing, which was geographically closer to her, and even gave her a typewriter as a gift to console her. She loved writing, and it kept her busy. And if she didn't become a teacher, she could always be a writer. Always immersed in her faith, Annalise regularly did penance not only for herself, but also for others. Like this time, when in a sincere burst of altruism, she spent the night on the bare pavement to atone for the sin of the heroin addicts she regularly saw asleep amidst their used syringes in front of trains and subway stations. Annalise performed this ritual regularly for three years hoping that God would forgive the sins of all the drug addicts living in Germany. But just as she was about to start university in 1970, Annalise had a third lightning attack that forced her to return to the clinic in Nuremberg. There, she underwent 
new and more thorough examinations, after which she was found to have cardiovascular problems. She remained in hospital for 10 days before returning home. From then on, the crisis followed one after another, more haunting than ever. The young girl episodically lost a movement in her legs, then one of her arms could no longer move, and her mother was obliged to help her get dressed and wash. In June 1971, Annalise was suddenly struck with general paralysis. The next day, she was rushed to her neurologist, who did another encephalogram and finally detected the onset of epilepsy. He prescribed her treatment for this disease, coupled with the whole prescription of antidepressants, namely pericyazine and tegetrol, with a formal order to comply with the chronological order of her treatment, insisting this was not a game and that it should not be taken lightly. Goodbye to university studies, goodbye to all her plans and goodbye to her future marriage to Peter. Annalise was on the verge of a breakdown. Epilepsy. This word sounded to her years like a death sentence, the end of everything she hoped to achieve in the years to come. Her mother, who now became her nurse and assistant, tried to cheer her up, helped her with the toilet, prepared her meals, and prayed with her every night. This is God's will, my dear, so be it. She would place the rosary in her hands, recite with her a Hail Mary, then kiss her forehead and leave after turning off the lights. In the Michael household, which was already upset by Annalise's recent illness, things would never be the same again. By the end of 1971, the teenager was faced with a new and unprecedented ordeal, completely different from anything she had experienced before. I saw it, Mom. I saw it. Right there on the wall. You saw what exactly? I saw it. It's disgusting. It's ugly. It's laughing at me. I'm afraid. Don't turn off the lights on your way out. Demonic figures, that's what Annalise's was talking about. She said that they appeared on the wall of her room. Figures with horns, forked out tails, straight out of hell that mocked her by sticking out their tongues and making scary faces. The girl even gave them a nickname, the Fratzen. But things did not stop there, because now Annalise spoke of voices and blows on the wall like violent punches that made her jump out of her bed. However, neither her parents nor her sisters seemed to notice these loud noises. To be sure, Josef Michael went around the house, inspected all the rooms, the pipes of the boiler, checked if there were any mice in the attic. And when he had gone through everything with a fine-toothed comb, he came down to announce that there was absolutely nothing. His daughter was not convinced. There were indeed noises, and she heard them as clearly as when anyone talks to her. For weeks, Annalise continued to hear these knocks growing distinctly for several nights in a row. Was it a simple fruit of her imagination or a phenomenon of sleep paralysis? We don't know. But things were just beginning. In addition to the blows on the wall, other physical phenomena, which were far more worrying, too began. Annalise began to perceive strange and nauseating smells. She spoke of the smell of sulfur, burning coal, fire, and feces. Smells that Catholics and the Bible generally attribute to hell. Her mother, in a panic, ran to the church to get holy water and sprinkled it all over the house. She even put in some sheets, clothes, and mattresses of her daughter. But nothing happened. The smells were still there and more and more unbearable for Annalise, who said she wanted to vomit continuously because of it. In 1972, Annalise visited a series of doctors whom she spoke about her visions. 
the various practitioners, neurologists, psychologists, and psychiatrists thought that she was hallucinating because of her epilepsy and therefore prescribed various neurological treatments, which were supposed to make her feel better, but instead had the opposite effect. However, at this stage, no one believed that she was possessed by any demonic force and her parents had still put all their hopes in medical knowledge, convinced that sooner or later their daughter would be completely cured of her illness. But something puzzled the doctors. This young girl, diagnosed as an epileptic and taking adequate treatment, did not seem to recover or even show any encouraging signs of improvement, which was out of the ordinary. Annalise was still undergoing a variety of brain x-rays, blood tests, and each time, nothing abnormal was detected. Some of her doctors even speculated that she may have invented all of this, the famous Munchausen syndrome by proxy, where the patient creates one or more pathologies to attract general pity and attention. It was not the same in Annalise's case anyway. Continuously bedridden, only going out to see the doctor, no longer seeing her boyfriend and friends, her studies put on hold, the teenager gradually sank into depression. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Between March and April 1973, without warnings, the vision of the Fratson and the smells of fire and coal made their return. The young girl was terrorized by the idea of staying alone in her room and her mother was obliged to hold her hand every night so that she would fall asleep. Still very restless and only for a short duration and woke up more than 10 times a night. To comfort her, her parents suggested taking her on a pilgrimage to San Damiano on the Italian border, but things did not go as planned. As she passed the statues of the Blessed Virgin, Annalise covered her eyes with fear and disgust. Even worse, she physically attacked one of the people accompanying her threatening to strangle her with her rosary beads, slapped her and pushed her violently to the ground for no obvious reason. Because of this incident, the pilgrimage was interrupted earlier than planned and the Michaels had to return to Germany as soon as possible, very shaken by what they had just experienced. After this disastrous episode, the teenager began to gradually lose her physical independence. She suffered from joint immobility, 
could no longer stand properly on her two legs, had to be supported by Anna to be able to walk, and could no longer control her biological flows, urinating in her clothes and wetting her bed every night. The need for recourse to religion was more urgent in such conditions. Anna Michael appealed to her parish priest, Father Christian Fassbinder, to come and see their daughter as soon as possible. Annalise, who was calmed by his presence, confided to him, Father, help me. I think I'm swinging in the middle of hell. Help me get out of it. I beg you. He then recited a rosary to her, blessed her, and left, promising to return as often as necessary. The teenager slept a little better that night, but the relief was short-lived. During a dinner that she wished to have with her family, Annalise experienced another manifestation. Her hands started to swell abnormally. She was so terrified that she fell off her chair, causing panic around the table. She started screaming hysterically. My hands! My hands! They're all black! What is happening to me? Oh, Jesus! Lord, have mercy on me! The Fratsons are back! They have seven crowns and seven forked tails. At the same time, she thought she saw the horrible demonic images surrounding her. Her parents, her sisters, frightened, ran to check the walls of the dining room, noticed nothing on them, returned to her, surrounded her, and tried to soothe her. But Annalise fainted instantly. The idea that Annalise was possessed began to plague her family from that fateful evening. Her parents no longer slept at night and Father Fassbinder's presence in the house became an almost daily necessity. What is Annalise really suffering from? What is happening to our child? Why does her epilepsy treatment does not seem to improve her condition? Anna and Joseph Michael spent their time asking these questions to themselves, but never found an answer. The ways of the Lord are inscrutable. As the family was deeply Catholic, the intrusion of the devil into the girl's soul became a probability. Yes, and why not after all? Soon the neighborhood and her friends of the family were made aware of Annalise's condition, and whispers of gossip that she was possessed by a particular harassing and ferocious demonic force began circulating. Every evening, prayer circles were organized to appease her tormented soul. Pater Nostra was recited, genuflections were performed, and even the girl herself had to participate in penance. Accompanied by her mother and the people of the prayer circle, she knelt and got up in rhythm for 40 minutes or even a whole hour. Except that this caused yet another problem since Annalise trained the ligament in her legs by her frantic genuflections. From a simple rumor, the supernatural track became a certainty. No more signs, no more doctors, and their expensive and useless treatments. Only faith could save the poor child. Under the pressure of the community, Anna and Joseph had a given. What if in the end, the people were right? Soon the things so feared by the parents took shape and supported all the rumors. Annalise became very hostile towards religious objects. She tore off her baptismal medallion and threw it out of the window, spilled holy water in front of the portraits representing saints, Christ and the Virgin Mary. She remained silent for a long time, staring at them with dilated eyes, entirely blank and wide-eyed. Her mother considered this to be the look of the devil himself. Josef and his wife, in despair, filed several requests with their episcopal authority of their parish for their daughter to undergo an exorcism, but their requests were all rejected. In 1975, thanks to Anna Michael's friend, she met a priest from Würzburg, a young and solicitous man, Father Ernest Old. He learned of Annalise's case and was distressed. Without any hesitation, he suggested to their mother that he would visit their daughter as soon as possible. 
Anna Michael saw a small ray of light at the end of the tunnel, perhaps nearing the end of all their worries. Annalise quickly developed a very friendly relationship with Father Ald, and the feeling was shared. During his visits, the girl began to open up to him, talk about her misfortunes, to confide her secrets to him, notably her aborted love affair with her boyfriend Peter. The priest, due to his vocation, listened to her patiently without judging her and even gave her behavioral advice. He was indeed a compassionate man who knew how to listen. The young woman felt good in his presence. At that moment, he supported the thesis of demonic possession because certain clues were not mistaken. Annalise had foul breath. Her eyes were dilated. Salty food made her nauseous, and any contact with water was repulsive. During his visits, Father Old noticed changes in the girl's behavior, and they did not bode well, apart from the fact that she now refused to eat altogether. She also began to utter strange cries with a rasping voice when it was not downright frightening. At night, she sometimes felt like being thrown out of her bed. She couldn't count the number of times she felt her blanket being pulled away from her while she was sleeping or the soles of her feet being tickled. Self-mutilation also became one of her favorite activities. Her mother cut her fingernails short to prevent her from lacerating her face and arms. So to distract her, she started biting everything. Her arms, her hands, her pillows, that she emptied of their feathers. At the height of her attacks, she also started to throw her head against the walls and to hit it so hard until it started to bleed. She said she heard voices screaming in her ears. She urinated under the tables, started howling like a wolf in the night, and giggled in a weird way. None of her sisters dared approach her for fear of being attacked by herself. Having become aggressive and uncontrollable, her mother had no choice but to tie her to her bed to prevent her from hurting herself or anyone else. But the horror had only just begun. It was 1975, and the strange evil that Annalise suffered from had not yet been cured. Exorcism was still on the table, but it was important to know that this practice is not something to be decided lightly. It usually requires the approval of a higher religious authority and valid reason to proceed. Annalise's parents asked again, but all the priests they spoke to refused to participate, unable to understand how a girl who had been baptized at birth could be possessed by the devil or by an evil force. Father Old advised the couple to wait and see how things developed, but things don't get better. They got worse. Realizing that he was the only one who could do something for this family that was desperately clinging to him, he decided to consult with the Archbishop of Würzburg, Monsignor Josef Stangl, and almost begged him to find a solution for this unfortunate situation before it was too late to act. Finally, the latter gave him the green light to carry out an exorcism and even offered him an assistance in this undertaking, which was not the easiest to carry out. A simple letter and Father Arnold Renz, originally from Berlin, had recently practicing in Würzburg, joined him in a few days. The first exorcism session took place on September 24, 1975. As soon as Father Old took out his crucifix, Annalise jumped on him, tore it off and threw it on the floor. The priest concluded that this was typical of a demonically possessed person. The next evening, accompanied by his assistants, Father Renz, they performed the Roman exorcism ritual on Annalise, and soon the girl had convulsions and began to speak to them in a voice other than her usual tone. The two priests, standing at safe distance, asked her, Who are you? I am Cain. I am Nero. I am Adolf Hitler. I am Lucifer. Anna Michael presented during the session, tried to transcribe the words of her daughter in a notebook. 
but she spoke with such a flow that she was unable to follow it. The next day, the same thing happened. Annalise declared that she was Valentine Fleshman, a Franciscan monk who had been burnt at the stake in the 16th century for apostasy. This revelation shocked the two priests who assured them that only the people of the church can know the dramatic and secret history of this monk. During the following weeks, the teenager underwent two exorcism per week, with each time an additional inclusion of rituals without managing to relieve her. Her symptoms became worse. Her physical appearance also began to deteriorate. Her face became shrunken, her complexion turned frighteningly pale, and she was left with nothing but skin on her bones and bites scars all over her forearms, which she inflicted on herself, often to the point of bleeding. For the rest, she refused to take bath, to change her pajamas, urinated everywhere in her room, and even defecated once in the dining room. She also refused to eat. Instead, she started eating insects, with a preference for flies and spiders. Her mother, who never let her out of sight to avoid any possible disaster, even tried once to read the Bible to her. But this enraged Annalise so much that she tore the book out of her hands and threw it across the room. During one of her exorcisms, conducted by Father Renz, the girl, after a series of frightful moans, declared, There is no peace down here. To be able to keep proof, the family started to record the session on audio tapes. They recorded no less than 40 tapes with dates and time to prove the real presence of the evil forces. Annalise, who was already weakened physically, contracted pneumonia during the period. She was often trembling with fever, but the two priests did not give her any respite. They had to get rid of the different entities that had taken over her soul. Each exorcism would last for one or two hours, and at the end of it, Annalise was often unconscious and would have lost her voice for the following few days. During the following session, she declared to herself to be Judas once again. Sometimes, she was also endowed with such a spectacular physical strength, struggling so frantically that it took three to four men to keep her still. Often the two priests were slapped, bitten, or even thrown to the ground or against a piece of furniture. To avoid any possible injuries, care was taken to clear out the maximum furniture out of the room, keeping only the carpet, two seats, and the bed which Annalise slept. Annalise, who often struggled, shook the bed so hard that it left gaping holes in the floor. At the beginning of June 1976, ten months after her first exorcism, Annalise was at the end of her tether. Her pneumonia had not healed and she was shadowed of her former self. She had for long stopped all medical treatment, even the one for epilepsy. Her exorcism rituals weakened her even more. One of the sessions she underwent lasted eight hours in a row. Eight hours of non-stop torture. Even the two priests fell from exhaustion at the end. But Annalise was resistant to any form of prayer. She showed a lot of aggressiveness towards anyone and more particularly towards religious objects which put her in a black rage. Physically, she often remained tied by her hand and foot to her bed, breathing with difficulty, haggard, and eyes black with purplish rings, her complexion paled, her mouth open, and she even began to lose her teeth and hair. In ten months, she had taken on the appearance of an old woman. Despite her terrible condition, Father Old and Renz were determined to not give up and to try everything again. On June 30, 1976, the last exorcism of Annalise Michael took place, a session that lasted almost five hours and was particularly more tiresome than the others. As soon as Father Renz began to say the customary prayer, the teenager let out a frightening scream. The two men 
Hans Clasp continued to recite in Latin, where they tried to manipulate the course of the conversation with the entity that haunted Annalise. In the room, where the lights was dimmed and all the curtains were drawn, Annalise's grunts and animal cries made her teeth grind. She covered the prayers with obscene sounds, stimulating an orgasm. She spat in the face of Father Wren several times and tried to bite Father Old before bursting into evil laughter. The two exorcists, who were very distraught, continued to pray louder and louder to cover Annalise's grumbling. This is an excerpt from the recording of this session. May your soul exalt the Lord. Get the hell out of here. I'm cursed. Who are you, Judas? asked Father Old. No, number 22. Well, Fleshman? Yes, I have to go now. Where to hell? Yes. Do you know what you have to say? Yes. Annalise, in her most guttural voice, let out another long, frightening moan. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, I order you to leave the body of the girl named Annalise Maria Teresa. I said get the hell out. Get out of this body now. Health, health, health. Saint Maria. Yes, encouraged the priest. Maria, I greet you. I greet you. Annalise repeated in a small voice. Full of grace. Full of grace. You will be done, said the priest, detaching his words. They will be done. Done. Amen. The Lord is my master. Now give her back her own body in the name of the triune God. No. 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 I order you to leave. Leave now. And never come back. Hail Mary, full of grace. That will be done. And then silence fell on the whole room. At the end of the last exchange, Annalise seemed for the first time to find some peace in above all completely normal voice. Before pronouncing the ritual prayer that closed any exorcism, Father Old began to ask her if she was well, if she felt happy and at peace. The teenager answered in the affirmative, Yes, I feel happy, so free, totally free, that I have never been in my life. Her mother beside her burst into tears and fell to her knees in front of the two priests who were also pale and trembling with emotion and fear. The next day, July 1st, Annalise was found dead in her bed. The news quickly reached the ears of the public prosecutor, who decided to open an investigation. Previously, none of the doctors who treated Annalise wanted to renew her prescription under the pretext that no medicine could overcome a supposedly possessed person. The autopsy report stated that Annalise died from severe dehydration and malnutrition which is why she lost half her teeth and more than 40 kilos. Her ordeal would have lasted 10 months, during which she would have undergone not less than 67 sessions of exorcism. An arrest warrant was immediately issued against Annalise's parents, Anna, Josef Michael, as well as the two priests, Ernest Old and Arnold Renz, for the charges of homicide, negligence, and failure to assist a person in danger. The trial, which began in September 1976, was followed in Germany, Italy, France, Spain, and all other predominantly Catholic European countries. In the dock, the four defendants pleaded not guilty. In their defense, the two priests played a few tapes recorded during the exorcism sessions, which had been recovered by the church and lent only for the trial. During the listening session, Father Renz and Old insisted that the devil's voice was quite distinct from Annalise that she had been inhabited by more than ten demonic entities, and that her breath exhaled a smell of sulfur as soon as she opened her mouth to speak. 
The speech therapist report even supported their statements, as it turns out that Annalise's vocalization during her exorcism were far superior to the normal vocal capacities that can be reached by a female person. However, despite these allegations, the public prosecutor categorically rejected the evidence put forward by the two churchmen. After two weeks of trial, the Michael couple and the two priests were finally sentenced to six months in prison, suspended. Ernest Old and Arnold Renz, benefiting from their religious immunity, finally spent only two weeks in prison before being released and later were completely cleared. Annalise's parents, on the other hand, paid bail and did not spend a single day behind bars. Just one month after their daughter's funeral, they ordered for her coffin to be dug up so that they could give her a better one. This episode was immortalized by the cameras of the German national channel ZDF. Ernest Old and Arnold Renz continued to serve in their respective parishes and were even part of delegations that regularly visited the Vatican for official ceremonies. Father Old was ordained a bishop in 2003. The 40 audio tapes recorded by Mrs. Michael were returned to the secret archives of the church. Only the tape recorded during the last exorcism had leaked and has since been copied and made public with the advent of the internet. Beware, however, those who wish to listen to them as the content is strongly discouraged for sensitive people and children. After the events, Anna and Josef Michael remained in the village of Würzburg. Occasionally interviewed by German television, they state that they have not regretted the decision to have their daughter exercise and are convinced that she is now sleeping in peace. Anna Michael, however, maintained that one of her entities was still present in her house and that sometimes she hears it banging inside the walls. In 2013, the Michael's family home was ravaged by fire that consumed it completely. The origin of the fire that broke out is still unknown. Some argue the criminal thesis, others the paranormal trial, but the police prefer to stick to the accidental thesis. The American director, Scott Derrickson, directed the 2005 The Exorcism of Emily Rose, faithfully inspired by the story and the ordeal of Annalise Michael. The film, which was a great success on the other side of the Atlantic, encouraged people to find out more about the story of the real Emily Rose. The following year, the German film Requiem, directed by Hans Christian Schmidt, was released in 2006, which also told the story of Annalise Michael. But it wasn't much successful. Till today, theories differ on the case of Annalise Michael. Some say she died of poorly treated pneumonia. Some say of negligence, and others believe that her soul was taken away by the devil himself. Her case is reminiscent of Maurice Tarot. In the 80s, the Quebecer Maurice Tarot died tragically after exorcism sessions. Her physical metamorphosis, filmed during video sessions, is as frightening as ever. One can notice in the video that her eyes slowly change color, going from something human to something empty, monstrous and demonic. Her lifeless body was eventually found in her bathroom, covered in stigmata and indecipherable messages written on her skin and blood. The tarot case remains one of the torniest files of the worn couple who have been specialized for years in the field of paranormal activities in the United States. For scientists, Annalise Michael was certainly schizophrenic or subject of a split personality disorder or the wrong mix of drugs administered to her only made her case worse. Her story, which was told beyond the borders of Germany, intrigued and frightened people all over the world, thus reinforcing the probability of demonic possession. We're at the end of our show for today, so feel free to listen to the other shows on the podcast and take five seconds to leave us a five-star rating on iTunes. It's really important to us. 
You can also subscribe to the next episodes and follow us on Facebook to suggest new ones. Thank you and see you soon. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.